Welcome back to another episode of Fake News. This was recorded on 26th of March, and we spoke with Sui Li Wee from the New York Times Beijing Bureau. We discussed what it's been like for her to cover the COVID-19 situation as a journalist and how it has affected her personally. Uh, we also referred to one of her stories in the episode, um, which follows two Chinese women who experienced very different fates from COVID-19. Um, for those of you who are interested, we left a link to the story in the podcast description. It's definitely worth a read. And in the meantime, we hope you enjoy today's episode, COVID-19 in the Media. Joining us today is Sweeney Wee. Uh, Sweeney is a correspondent for the New York Times and the Beijing Bureau. So welcome. Uh, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, so we spoke a few weeks ago, seems like a, a long time now, uh, when you were working on a story. And at that time, you'd come to Singapore for Chinese New Year. And I guess you're still here. So can you tell us how the COVID-19 situation has affected you personally? Yeah, so I arrived here January 17th, um, intending to stay here just for two weeks uh, with my kids, um, and we're still here. <laughs> um, we, you know, I always joke that we're coronavirus refugees. We're, there's four of us to a room in my mother's flat, um, but, you know, at, at the same time, I feel really lucky to be, you know, in a safe bubble like Singapore. Um, my, I've enrolled my eldest son, who's four, into school. Um, my baby's in a daycare here, and I'm working from here. So um, this, this is how it's been for the past three months, I guess. Mm. And in terms of your coverage of the COVID-19 situation, what are the main issues, main stories that you've focused on? So uh, the first story I wrote about, I, I cover healthcare in China, um, and the first story I wrote about was about the broad um, healthcare system in China and how it's really overcrowded and underfunded in normal times and, um, and the stresses that, you know, the coronavirus outbreak brings to, to the hospital system. Um, and we had, you know, accounts from people there talking about how they were trying to get tests. Um, they were turned away from the hospitals. They couldn't even get to the hospitals because uh, the hospitals just turned them away. Um, the second story that I did was um, I'm really fascinated about the use of traditional Chinese medicine in, in its treatment plan. The government is really pushing that. And so um, it was kind of an in-depth look at what traditional Chinese medicine is and how it worked during SARS and, um, and the issues around it. Um, and the third one, I also looked at testing, which um, which is obviously a big problem in, in China and now we're seeing in the U.S. too. Um, the, um, the, the doctors in, in China were finding that the tests were too slow, so uh, they were pushing for CT scans to be used as a first uh, method of screening. Um, and that actually uh, was accepted by the Chinese government as, as a way um, to screen patients first. Um, I'm trying to recall the other things that I've done. Um, I've also looked, oh yes, um, doctors facing a huge shortage of personal protective equipment. Um, was also a big story that I worked on with my colleagues. And what do you think has been the kind of public res response uh, in, in, in China to the to the measures, uh, we've been seeing some fairly stringent uh, measures in, in, in China. So do you have a, a sense for people's reaction? Yeah, so in 
in Wuhan and Hubei, the epicenter of the outbreak, it was lots of people very angry um, at at the sweeping nature of the, the you know the the restrictions. The people were they were going door to door, um, and and testing these people, bringing them to these mass quarantine centers, um, and there didn't seem to be any room for negotiation. Um, and after a while, I think there was also a sense of resignation and an understanding that um, these measures needed to be taken um, to curb the epidemic. Um, so yeah, I would characterize it as like anger, um, just confusion and fear and um, and then just like a stoicness, you know, to get through this. And what for you have been the main challenges in covering the COVID situation, the COVID-19 situation? I, I think the biggest thing would be basically a lack of color because, you know, the best version, version of journalism is being on the ground. Um, and I, I feel a disconnect, you know, reporting from here and then um, talking to people in, in Wuhan. Um, but it's been, it's been helped by, um, I have a team of researchers in China who are working the telephones nonstop um, and there are videos online too and pictures. So, um, you know, in that sense, you, you, get, you get some sort of sense of what's happening. Um, I have a colleague in Wuhan too, and even he can't get close to the hospitals. So um, it's really just getting people to describe as much you know, in, in as much detail as they can about what's happening. Um, and the other issue, I guess, would be also uh, the conspiracy theories um, that, you know, people tend to believe in this time and trying to wade through what's rumor and what's real. Um, it's, uh, that's also hard. Uh, in terms of uh, people's, people receiving rumors through these messaging apps or social media, do you think that's uh, affected how they respond to government measures? Or? Yeah, so I'm, there's a huge lack of uh, public trust. Um, and I think that, I mean, I, I just living here and seeing how much the public trusts the government, it's such a, you know, it's so jarring. Um, in China, because of what happened with SARS and there is always a huge belief that there was, you know, the government's covering, covering up something or, you know, um, they, they're trying to, they're not working in the people's interests. Um, so I think that has affected a lot of the initial response to what the government was doing. Uh, there was some resistance and then, and after that, just, yeah, um, a sense of acceptance. And what would you say are your overall impressions of the media coverage on COVID-19? Are there things that have been um, covered particularly well or things that you think could be improved? So I, I started covering the, the outbreak since January 2nd. Um, I, we started hearing reports from Wuhan that there was this mysterious pneumonia-like illness that was affecting people there. And um, and then they had they detained eight people for spreading rumors. And so... I think, so So it was January 2nd that I said, like, maybe we should do something about this weird, mysterious illness. And I was started talking to people there who had recovered from it, and they described it as, like, a bad cold, you know, uh, where they said they were getting out of the hospital. So 
um, that was the story that I put out that China was grappling with this weird um, pneumonia-like illness. But at that time, because of the people I spoke to who said that they were recovering, it seemed to me, as I was writing it, I didn't, um, it didn't come across like, you know, to be the, the serious uh, pandemic that we're, that we're looking at now. Um, and, and I've gone back to read that story. Um, and I think it was fairly and accurately reported, but I wonder whether there was any sort of um, sense of urgency that I could have conveyed to other people about what was happening in China. Um, there is a real struggle in the media. You know, my, my colleague, Donald, who's been covering all these outbreaks since like for decades has always, we, we were exchanging notes and he was like, you know, the real struggle is do you be alarmist or do you not be alarmist? And he's been accused of being both, you know, every, in every single outbreak. And so we went back and read like all our stories from, from the beginning and to see, you know, what, what we could have reported on better. Um, and, and then it became clear, I guess, that, that China was covering up, um, at least in, in Wuhan, they had covered up the extent and the severity of the disease. Um, and um, I, so I guess, I don't know, that was, that's my long answer to, <laughs> um, if there was a way we could, I don't know, emphasize um, what, what the virus is like. But I guess everybody was just grasping for straws in the beginning too. Um, and then another thing that I feel I wished we had covered more was basic was more about life in Wuhan as people just grappled with their stay at home measures and boredom. Just you know, um, we were a lot of us were just covering all the the hardest stuff, um, but just life and how the people were being affected. I think was another story that we could have done more on. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it was trying to see more kind of personal stories right or patient experiences now that uh, we have had a bit of time to adjust to this yeah. very rapidly changing situation. Oh, another another thing that I, you know, now that looking back at what's, looking at the coverage from the U.S. and um, it's really like, it, I just feel like a horrible sense of deja vu looking at the stories because it's exactly what we wrote about in February with mm -hmm. Wuhan. And it makes me, you know, I've been wondering what, why they haven't prepared um, for the outbreak, you know, just looking at all the stories, it's exactly the same, you know, lack of personal protective equipment, the hospitals being overwhelmed, not enough ventilators. And I think if we had more video or more visuals of what was happening on the ground there, it would have conveyed the same, same sense of urgency. I think if it's not broadcast or streamed into the homes of like, you know, people in the US and Italy and, and Europe, um, they, they don't, I don't know. Um, that's that's my sense of why, um, you know, the governments there were not as prepared. Yeah. So having spent some time in, in Singapore now, what are the, the main things that you've learned about the response here and how it compares to either what you saw in China or what you're seeing now in other countries? Um, the I think the public messaging here has been um, really impressive. The WhatsApp messages, you know, I, I came here and then I signed up for the government WhatsApp messages and the, the daily stuff you get. And and also, 
what's really uh, significantly different is the um, the speeches by the Prime Minister on what to expect coming up, um, giving you some sort of mental preparation and and just you know how much information there is. I was amazed just looking at the first week here how they were reporting the cases and actually telling you like case sixty five was linked to case forty seven and you know drawing in a graphic and and you know coming from China where like statistics are just like statistics you know. I'm, Granted, they're overwhelmed, right? And they probably don't have time to track like every single case. But in Singapore, you could clearly see uh, the clusters uh, forming. And I know I've spoken to a lot of epidemiologists who said like they, at that time, in the early uh, weeks of the outbreak, that they were looking to Singapore and Japan for clues on, on the virus and how it affected lots of people because the government here has been so transparent with information. And one thing I wanted to talk to you about, like in the scientific community, um, one of the things that we grapple with is how to communicate uncertainty. We're not necessarily very good at telling people what we don't know or how much about something we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you, is it difficult for you as a, as a journalist to know how to convey that level of uncertainty to the, to the public? Or are there ways in which we could as scientists and journalists um, work together to improve how we convey uncertainty. So I'm thinking about things like, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of discussion of, uh, about what the case fatality rate for COVID-19 yeah. is. There's a lot of uncertainty about that just because of the difficulties in interpreting the data. Or for example, uh, how much asymptomatic transmission there is, or how much people who don't have any symptoms can spread the, the virus. Uh, and in terms of epidemic projections, like how we can expect to see cases accumulating over the coming months or how effective different types of interventions are or yeah. what we can expect social distancing to do in terms of curbing transmission. Uh, so do you have some um, thoughts on what, uh, what the main approaches are to, to conveying that level of uncertainty or some key things that we should bear in mind? Mm just talking to us all the time, <laughs> I guess. We've been, so lots of scientists, especially in China, are putting out all these studies um, on all the various issues that you've talked about. Um, they haven't been peer-reviewed, uh, but they're getting published and people are writing about them because there's so little information and we're trying to understand um, um, the, the virus as much as we can. So I think just being available to be uh sort of third party, um, you know, to talk about these studies would be very helpful. Um, yeah. And any other tips you would have for scientists talking to the media? Um, no, really, just like be available and um, yeah, at, at any time and, you know, um, yeah. Uh, and then one other development that we've seen recently is uh, these concerns regarding the expulsion of American journalists uh, from China. So can you tell us a little bit about that situation and, and how you think it might impact the reporting of the pandemic? Yeah, so this this is a, a result of a diplomatic spat with the U.S. Um, and the Chinese government say that they are reacting to 
the U.S. forcing them to push out 60 Chinese journalists. Um, this is a huge blow um, to to the Times and to my colleagues in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post because it effectively removes, you know, the bulk of our staff. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, and it couldn't, it couldn't be happening at a worse time, really, like in, in the midst of a pandemic where we need um, free information. We need as much information, uh, independent information. Um, so, but we'll continue reporting, um, you know, without fear or favor. Um, I'll, be, I'll be returning to China in, in May and, um, you know, be flying the flag. <laughs> uh, and just one final thing to end with. Um, can you tell us one thing that's particularly res- resonated with you uh, about the epidemic? So something that uh, has had a deep impression on you or something you've learned or found surprising? Um, gosh, there's so many things. I, um, I mean, what's really just the, the whole, I, the, one thing that really s- stuck with me was, um, just reading my colleagues, um, stories from Italy and how the doctors and nurses are just crying every night, um, really mirrored what, um, you know, our reporting experience from, just talking to people in Wuhan and when you called, you know, you called these hospital administrators and they're bursting to tears because they, they just don't have enough protective equipment. Um, I, yeah, I just, it, it's, it's still stuck with me. And, and also, um, I guess I, I also wanted to talk about this story that I did recently, which was the most read story I've ever written ever in my career and it was about how one patient recovers and how one dies from the virus Mm -hmm. and I had published it maybe two weeks ago and I thought that okay look I've written so many stories about the virus that you know everyone would be like okay we know this but for some reason it really resonated um and um we spoke the the patient who recovered told us she lost a sense of smell and my colleague in New York read that and and she was reporting on the virus in New York and, and she said one day she was eating lunch and she realized she had lost a sense of smell and she remembered that story and she immediately went to get checked and she was tested positive. Um, and that was the first time, I guess, like I never really know what the impact of my story is, mm. but I felt that was, you know, one of the few times I had did public service journalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's so many things we don't know yet, and I just, I just feel like our world will be, you know, irrevocably changed once all this is over. Yeah, I read the story. It was a, it was a great story. We Thank you. Put a link to it on the, on the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so with that, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's been great talking to you, and look forward to more reporting from your side. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another fake news episode. Thank you for tuning in, and if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a review either on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Um, If you didn't enjoy it, leave us a review anyway and tell us why. 
See you all at the next episode. Until then, stay home and stay healthy.